Well, I don't know if you've noticed this week, but somebody has released his book. It's a bit of a tell-all from someone's particular perspective about life as a royal. Now, I don't know what your view is on the royals, whether you're a royalist or not a royalist, whether you believe William or whether you believe Harry. Whatever your perspective, I've been trying to analyze it a little bit this week as to why they're not getting on. I was trying to analyze it also against the backdrop of this book of Romans. See, it seems to me that the war in the royal household is over the fact of you're a royal, you must live like a royal. Now, whether you believe that those royal rules are right or wrong, this to me seems to be where the debate rages. You're a royal, therefore you live like a royal, like the firm, or you don't. And when I've been looking at the gospel according to Paul as he writes to the church at Rome, for the first 11 chapters he says, this is who you are. You're spiritual royalty. You've been justified. You've been adopted. You've been transferred. You've been reconciled. You've been loved. You've been called. You've been changed. You've been transformed. And he says, this is who you are, your spiritual royalty. But about four or five years ago, we didn't get to finish the book. What does it look like then for us to be spiritual royalty and for it to change and to affect our daily living? In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, there's about three imperatives. And what does that mean? That means they're commands. In the first 11 chapters of the book, Paul, verse after verse and chapter after chapter, is telling you who you are. You're spiritual royalty. You are God's children. And now over these next three or four months, we're going to see, well, what does it look like to be one of God's children? Chapters 1 to 11 tells us about doctrine, what it means to be in Christ. Chapter 11, Paul bursts out in praise in doxology. He's singing about the gospel, how wonderful that God would bring Jews and Gentiles together into this body of Christ. And then in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, he's telling us about what it looks like to live a life dedicated to the gospel. And so I'm looking forward to these next three or four months together. Paul lays out his manifesto of the whole book in Romans 1 verse 16. He says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we want to see what it looks like for this belief in Christ to take root in your life and mine. That's why we've entitled this little series over these three or four months, Christian Living. Christian living. What does it look like for you to go into your workplaces tomorrow morning, into your retirement tomorrow morning, into your family tomorrow morning, into your singleness tomorrow morning? What does it look like for the gospel to take root in your heart and then to become manifest in how you and I live? This is a series on Christian living. But we'll not forget in this series what we would call the gospel indicatives. Now, I used to hate grammar at school, and I'm throwing a lot of grammar at you, but, but an indicative is who you are. Chapters 1 to 11, Paul says, this is who you are, and then he moves to the imperatives, this is what you are to be. And so let's look at the gospel grammar in Romans chapter 12 
to 16. Our believing must affect our behaving. Two points today. Firstly, the call. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The call to Christian living. Paul writes to these Jews and these Gentile Christians who are struggling to get along together in the church. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, I exhort you. I earnestly implore you, not as a superior to an inferior, but, but as a minister of Jesus Christ, as a minister of the gospel, I encourage you, I'm coming alongside you as someone that has been transformed by the gospel on the Damascus Road when I hated the gospel and I hated Christianity. I'm coming alongside you as a fellow Christian to encourage you to believe and to behave like Jesus Christ. But on what grounds is Paul making this appeal? Look at this little word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. He's making this appeal, I believe, based on the whole of the book, on the whole of the exhortations given in Romans 1 to 11. There's the therefore of condemnation. In Romans 1, Paul speaks of what it looks like for a culture to give up on following God. And so there's the therefore of condemnation, Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves. There's the condemnation in Romans 1 and 2. But there's the therefore of justification in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The therefore of condemnation, but then the therefore justification. Then the therefore of assurance in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One writer says, the banner that flies over the Christian life is no condemnation. But now there's the therefore of dedication. Romans 12 verse 1, therefore I appeal to you, offer your bodies. But on what Further grounds does Paul make this appeal? Look at what it says in the text. It's by the mercies of God. You could say that this little phrase, the, the mercies of God, is again Paul picking up the whole letter, the whole of chapters 1 to 11 is describing the gospel. It's describing the mercy of Jesus Christ. It's describing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's describing the love of God. So when Paul says, I'm about to make all these commands to you, it's all grounded in, it's all founded on the mercy of Christ. And who is the source of mercy? Well, it's ultimately God the Father. How do we know this? 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. The Father of mercy. So based on this gospel, based on what has been given to us from the triune God. Paul says, look at verse 1, what should you do now? How should you live in light of this? Present not the person who's sitting beside you's body, not someone else sitting in this church, 
not your colleague, not your coworker, not your family member. Present, look what it says in the text, your, your body. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Paul says, don't give something. Give someone yourself. He's not, in a sense, looking for your money. He's not, in a sense, looking for your time or for your talent or for your treasure or for your possessions. He wants you. Present yourself. Present your body. Paul writes about this all over the New Testament to the church at Philippi. Philippians 1 verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage and now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, to the car crash of a church at Corinth, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There was a little girl I read about this week who when the offering bags, as they're put here at the front, and I'm so glad that the deacons and stewards take these away afterwards because I have no idea what happens to them next. But as these offering bags were passed around, a, a true story, apparently a little girl tried, as one was passed to the end of her row, she was sitting there, she tried to get into the bag herself. There were big bags in those days. Why? Because she had heard the week before at Sunday school that if you're a Christian, you've got to offer yourself to God. And as a child, thinking objectively, she thought, well, when the offering bag comes round, surely I myself have to give. And I've got, I've got to give myself. It's a beautiful and simple picture of what it is to be a Christian. It's not to give something. It's to give someone. It's to give yourself. Give your body in what form, well, we all think about whether it should be a slim form or a fatter form at this time of year as we put our weight on at Christmas. But Paul doesn't say anything about our calorie counting here or our body fat content. Look at what he says. It says, uh, present your body as a living, strange term, sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living one. One historian said this, first century people were familiar with the offering of sacrifices. They had stood by the altar and watched as an animal was identified as their own, and it was slain in this ritual manner. Its blood manipulated in the whole or part of the victim burned on the altar and descended in the flames to the deity they worshipped. To suggest this to this first century church, that they should be sacrifices, was a, was a striking piece of imagery to them. When Paul would have written to this fledgling church at Rome with converted Jews and converted Gentiles who normally hated one another and disassociated with each other, both of them in either form of their religious guises before becoming Christians knew what it was to offer sacrifices. But Paul says, don't offer up dead sacrifices. Living living sacrifices. Paul here is not speaking of the taking of a life, but of the giving of a life. He's not speaking of the taking of a life, but of the giving of a life. Why? Because someone's already given his life. Someone's life has already been taken 
the Lord Jesus Christ, when he offered up himself on that cross outside of the city limits of Jerusalem, was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. When he died on the cross, the temple curtain that stood in the Holy of Holies that separated a holy God from an unholy people was torn from the top to bottom. And so now the way to God had been made open through Jesus Christ, his one and only son, all of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which pointed forward to the coming of the perfect sacrifice for sin has now come about. There's no longer any need to take a life. Now we give our lives because his life was taken for us. Theodore of Herculea was a Christian martyr from Pontius who died around 8306. Speaking to some of his persecutors, he says, I know not your gods, but Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, is my God. You can beat me, you can tear me, you can burn me, and if my words offend you, cut out my tongue, every part of my body is ready when God calls for it as a sacrifice. He says, my body is a living sacrifice. But one writer says the problem is with living sacrifices is that we want to crawl off the altar. Not true. As living sacrifices, we want to often crawl off the altar of of sacrifice. Another writer says, consecration in our lives isn't our giving anything to God, but it's our taking our hands off what already belongs to God. It's taking our hands off our bodies which already belong to God. To God. See, God wants all of you. He wants all of me. But like you, I feel I'm reluctant to give him all. And Paul has already written this to the church at Rome. In Romans 6, verse 12, where they were battling with sin in their bodies, he writes in Romans 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but Present yourselves to God. Why? As those who have been brought from death to life and your members or your bodies to God as instruments for righteousness. Why? For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Paul was saying, you're wonderfully new. You've been justified. You've been ransomed. You've been healed. You've been forgiven. You are now a precious possession of the Lord Jesus Christ be who you are. You don't longer have to be a slave to unrighteousness. You don't longer have to be addicted to all of these things which promise you so much and deliver so little. Be who you are. It continues Romans 6, 18. Having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once, think about it, presented your body or your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more and more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And if we do that, look at the end of Romans 12, verse 1. What will our living be characterized by? It'll be holy and acceptable to God, 
and it will be your logical, your intelligent, your rational worship. What is Paul talking about here? Paul is saying now that Jesus Christ has come and tabernacled himself in your heart. The holy of holies, which God's presence was said to dwell, that was now over. Christ now comes to live in the Christian. So when the church service would have been over in Rome, wherever they gathered, perhaps on a Sunday evening after the work was over, Paul was saying that the Holy Spirit, God himself, goes with you. When they would have gone into their employment the next day in Rome in that first century, God had tabernacled himself in their hearts. God was with him. The Holy Spirit was in them. And so you need to have a lifestyle of worship. You can't just compartmentalize and say, well, I, I go to worship at church on Sunday, and then the other six days of the week, I can go and live as I please in my family and amongst my colleagues. No, 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 no. Paul is saying Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's tabernacled himself in you. And so your life 24-7 is to be a lifestyle of worship and a lifestyle of holiness. He says, actually, in the Greek text, this is your logical worship. Because if Christ was the Holy One of Israel, and if He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth, and He offered up His holy body for you, surely you must offer up your body in holiness to Him. He says that's logical. It's your logical response. Let me ask you about your heart. Is it characterized by the holiness of Christ? Because what your heart loves will affect how you live. This is the call to Christian living. But what about the commitments? What about the commitments to Christian living? Verse 2. Look at what Paul says. He tells them some things not to do, some things to do. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Consider now what Paul says you should be running from. Here's the don't. Let me confess, I said this to you when I preached through Romans 1 to 8. See, when I see the signs, don't step on the grass. I just want to step on the grass. There's just something within me, and I think I passed it on to a few of my children, one in particular. Paul says, don't. Don't what? Do not. Look at what it says. Don't be conformed to what? To, to this world. Don't let this world shape you. Don't let it remodel you. Don't let it fashion you. And as one writer says, don't let it squeeze you into its mold. You see that smartphone in your pocket? You want to know who the writers are telling us in this 21st century culture, who or what is discipling you? That smartphone is. It's discipling you. It's training you. It's conforming you, depending on what's in it and on it. And Peter wrote to the 
to the believers in Asia Minor, 1 Peter 1 verse 14, as obedient children of God, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Why? Because as he who called you is holy, you must be holy in all you do. So what does it look like? What does it look like not to be conformed to this world? It's to look at your life and mine and say, what is temporal and what's immortal? As you look at your life, are you living nearly exclusively for that which is temporal, for that which is passing away, or for that which, if it's done through Christ, is immortal. Paul says, don't just live for this temporal world, this temporal universe, this temporal worldly system. Why? Well, because he said in another letter to the church at Galatia, in Galatians 1 verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Why? Why did he do this? To deliver us, what from? From this present evil world. John Stott helps us here, where he says this, there are two value systems. One is this world's, and one is God's and they're incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. Whether we are thinking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life, about how to measure greatness of how to respond to evil, whether we're thinking about ambition in our own life, sex, honesty, money, community, the two sets of standards diverge so completely that there is no possibility of compromise. Augustine talked about the, the, there's two, two cities, the, the kingdom of heaven, the city of heaven or the city of this world, and they're competing with one another. And a writer challenged me this week when he said in his little book, he said, what sort of a Christian are you? Are you a thermometer Christian or a thermostat Christian? Now, what do I mean by that? What did this writer mean by that? If you're a thermometer type Christian, you go into particular settings in your workplaces or in your families or in your social groups or in your sports clubs or your recreational activities. And whatever that culture is around you, whether it's going up or whether it's going down, you just Follow the cultural temperature of the secular people around you. You're just literally responding to that which is all around you. But a thermostat goes in and wants to set the temperature. So the Christian goes into every form of society. Just like one writer wrote in the first century to another particular emperor, they said, these Christians have infiltrated every part of society, even Caesar's household, but they didn't go in as a thermometer. They went in as a thermostat to change the temperature to be that of Christ Jesus. What does that look like? It means you can go into your workplaces and it can be horrendous. 
All sorts of language, all sorts of thinking, all sorts of jokes. But if you're setting the spiritual temperature, you're the person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You're going to set your temperature and you're not going to be affected by theirs. Don't be conformed to this world. But what should we be? But be transformed. In the original text, it's where we get our English word metamorphosis. You must be transformed. You must be changed into another form. This inner reality of what you and I have in Christ must manifest itself in our living. The Bible calls it the process of sanctification. Sanctos means holy, and so that's where we get this word, sanctification. It means to be set apart, to be holy. When you become a Christian, the Bible says you're justified. Romans 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified, not by our own works, not by the law. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, what do we have? We have peace with God. Wonderful truth. But from the moment you're justified to the moment you see Jesus face to face, you'll be absent from the body, present with the Lord, and you'll enter what people talk about, that glorified state. Between justification and glorification is this long, hard period of being sanctified, being made more like Jesus. And Paul writes about it all over the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 8, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, what's happening to us, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What is God's will for my life in my workplace tomorrow morning is to be like Jesus there. Simple, hard, but simple. Romans 8, verse 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Why? Why did he predestine us? To be conformed who? To the image of his son. Don't be like the world. Be like Jesus. But how does it happen? Well, Paul helps us, and he'll help us through the rest of the book. Look at what it says at the end of verse 2. By the renewal of your mind. If you can control someone's mind, you often can control how they live. You know the battle there is on for your own mind. People now talking about the mental health pandemic post the COVID lockdowns. There's a battle for our minds. And Paul knew that. God the Holy Spirit can control our mind. He can control our living. But what is incredible about this, there's a sense in which there's, there's a passive nature to this, which blows my mind. In this process between being justified in the heavenly courts and being glorified in his presence, this process of sanctification, being made more like Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the power behind it all. But there's a sense in which we as Christians need to give Him the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit, the opportunities to do His work best. 
his word, fellowship, community, singing to one another, meeting together, encouraging one another, challenging one another, the ministry of the word and prayer. When we do these things, God, the Holy Spirit, starts to take up what the Bible and scholars call the means of grace and starts to change us, changes our minds. Because when our minds are not changed and they're following the world, listen to what Paul said God did in the first century. In Romans 1 verse 28, because they became so sexualized in their thinking, what did God do with many in the first century? Romans 1 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Because if you can control the mind, you can control the living. And so when they did not want to follow God's ways, God says, well, you can have your way. My daily readings, I'm in Genesis 6, 7, 8 within the days of Noah. God says you can have it. You won't live for me. You can have your way. But not the Christian. Christians are to be in the world. But the world must not be in us. If you think about a submarine, which is fully functional in water, is ruined when water comes within. A submarine on the ground out of water is useless and is not accomplishing its mission. But when it's in the water, it must be insulated, but not isolated from the water. But if the water ever gets into the submarine, as many of you have seen in those maritime movies, the alarm goes off. Isn't this a helpful picture? You, Christian, are to be submarines in the world. The world all around you, beneath you, above you, all around you. It's God plants you as a little submarine into your environment. But not the world in you, but Christ in you, living his life through you, out into the world all around you. How can I change? How can you change? Well, quite simply, what I put into my mind, what you put into your mind, will come out. What you're putting in, if you're addicted to your phones and to technology, and those things ultimately are not helping you spiritually, it will shape your mind. It'll reprogram your mind. David said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what does he do? He meditates on it. The same word used for worry. He meditates on it. He, in a sense, he murmurs on it day and night. What what will happen to him? He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. What you put into your minds will come out. And this is what Paul is saying. He wants that inner spiritual transformation at the very locus control center of our lives. When God's word is going in and God's spirit is at work, look what happens. Look at the end of verse 2 then you'll be able to test. 
then you'll be able to test and you may discern what is the will of God. What we believe will affect our behavior. What we put in will come out. And Isaac Watts wrote these beautiful poetic words. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. He started at the cross, like the book of Romans. Romans 1 to 11 speaks so much of the cross of Christ. But listen to how Watts finishes his poetic words. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's just take a few moments to pray, and then Keith will lead us at the Lord's table. Father, we come in a sense in confession to you this morning when we consider at times how our lives drift. And Father, we confess so often we drift towards conformity to this world, conformity to the spirit of the age, conformity to the likeness of friends and family members and workplaces. Help us, Father, to be like these submarine Christians, to be in the midst of the world. Father, we thank you that was the heart of your Son, that you wouldn't take us out of the world, but that you would leave us in, but that you would send the, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, who would come and strengthen us and help us and empower us to be Jesus, to be like him in the midst of a wicked and a debased generation. Father, it's our heart's desire in this series over these next three or four months that what we are, that what we have in Christ might become manifest in our living. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.